We're in our second episode of Encore, the new show for binge reading on Patreon supporters, talking to favourite authors, people who've already been on the podcast about their latest release. And today we've got international bestseller Jill Paul, who's already been on the podcast twice before, talking about her latest book, The Collector's Daughter. I love the way Jill makes historical events come alive in her fiction, and this book is no exception. The Collector's Daughter is a dual timeline novel moving between the 1920s and the 1970s, telling the story of the life of Lady Evelyn Herbert, the English aristocrat who was involved with the opening, the very famous opening of Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s and went on to live through the long-term after-effects of the supposed curse of the pharaohs. She's also got the claim to fame of having grown up in the real Downton Abbey, Highclere Castle, where the popular TV series was filmed. So welcome to the show, Jill, and tell us about Pharaoh's tomb and Lady Eve's part in it all. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Jenny. It's lovely to talk to you. Yes, Lady Evelyn was there with her father, the Earl of Carnarvon and Howard Carter, when the tomb was discovered and opened in 1922. And all the evidence is that they sneaked in by night without the Egyptian authorities watching over them and that Eve was the first one to crawl in. And she was a young lady from the English aristocracy. And I, I thought to myself, gosh, what that must have that have been like for her. I'd always been interested in Egyptian stories from school days, but it only really came home to me in 2011 when I visited Egypt and I went to the Valley of the Kings. We went down that long corridor that Eve and her father and Howard Carter would have gone down in 1922 and saw where his tomb had been and then went up to Cairo and saw all the artefacts in the Egyptian museum. And that was staggering. I mean, the enormous wealth of all the the gold tombs and the funeral masks and the jewellery. And then little personal details like Tutankhamun had sandals that had pictures of Nubians on the soles. The Nubians were the enemies of the Egyptians. So every time he walked, he was walking on his enemies. And uh, I loved all the little personal touches I saw in the tomb. That's what really brought it to life for me. That's amazing. Now, one of the themes of the story that penetrates the whole story really is the long-term belief that there was some sort of curse involved in opening the tomb. And Lady Evelyn did actually suffer quite a lot of personal misfortune in her life, including being involved in a massive car accident, which resulted in a series of small TIAs, as they're called, and later more serious strokes. And part of the story is her as an older lady in the 1970s, when she, her, her, she is impaired with some of her memory and memory loss and things. That's an interesting part of it because quite a significant part of the story is told by this older character who's impaired. That was obviously something you deliberately chose to handle that way. My inspiration for this novel when I decided to write about Lady Eve's part in this huge historical event were two photographs that kind of bookmarked her life. There's the photograph outside the tomb in 1922 with Howard Carter and her father 
and her standing there that made me realise how much she had been part of the discovery because it wasn't reported at the time. It was always, always reported as a double act between Carter and Carnarvon. And then there's another photograph of her in 1972 at the opening of the exhibition at the British Museum. And she's standing beside the Tutankhamun mask, the famous gold funeral mask. And she looks slightly dazed and it might just have been the flashbulbs. But then I read that she had this series of strokes and brain incidents. And I thought, gosh, these two photographs kind of bookmark her life. And I wanted to write about the way her life was affected by being part of the Tutankhamun discovery. And uh, I didn't straight away write it as a dual timeline. I tried to write it as, as a chronological story. But of course, then there's a big chunk of the middle of Eve's life that wasn't really going to be part of my story, which is why I, I settled in the end on this dual timeline going backwards and forwards. Now, it was a difficult decision really to write about somebody whose memory is impaired by stroke, but it did seem to me to be part of this story. She did, as you say, have this car accident in 1935 that certainly affected her health. It was reported in the Times at the time. And it, it was just part of her life, part of who she was. I mean, you touched on the curse story and I I did toy with whether to include it because I wasn't, I'm not really interested in writing sort of magic realism, are there ghosts in the room type books. Yeah. But it was such a big part of the way that Eve saw the story. She certainly wondered if the curse could have been part of it. And there are newspaper interviews she gives where she says, for example, that she offered to release her husband, uh, her fiancé, Brograve, from their engagement in case she was cursed. So because I was writing from her point of view and she clearly believed in it, it was something that I had to address. It was part of the way it was reported at the time. It made all the newspaper headlines, you know, curse strikes again every time somebody died who'd been mm. inside the tomb. Mm. So, yeah, I couldn't avoid it at all. <laughs> yeah. Her father did die from a very unusual, what was really a very minor accident, very soon after the tomb was opened. I guess that might have been one of the ways in which it started. Well, it strikes us as an unusual way to die. But of course, in these pre-antibiotic days, septicemia yeah. was a yeah. very real and, and you know, a major cause of death. He, was, mm. he got a mm. mosquito bite on his cheek, for those who don't know the story, and he then nicked it while shaving and he got blood poisoning, septicemia. And there was nothing they could do about that. Either a young, fit, healthy man might have fought it off, but he had poor health from a car accident that he'd had in 1909 and uh, he had breathing problems and he just wasn't strong enough to fight it off. So it wasn't that unusual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just that Fleet Street wanted to write it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the current Lady Carnarvon describes the opening of the tomb as the first global media event. Would you think that's accurate? It absolutely was. It's impossible yeah. to overstate how big the story was in 1922 and 1923, right through the 20s, actually. And one of the reasons is because of advances in print technology, which meant that stories could be um, cabled around the world instantly. And Harry Burton's photographs, iconic photographs taken inside the tomb. So people could not even read about it, just read about it. They could see these treasures 
in place in the tomb and it was massive. I mean, it really changed so much. It changed fashions of the day. You know, the flappers started wearing the black coal eyeliner with the flicks at the side and cobra bracelets that slunk up their arms. It changed, it influenced architecture. The Art Deco architecture has, has very clearly got the kind of hieroglyphic phoenix wings shapes in it. It All kinds of merchandise was made out of Egyptian designs. There were stage shows. The first film came in 1932. Boris Karloff starred in The Mummy, (laughs) which is a classic. Even Roosevelt named his dog King Tut. So, I mean, it was everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. That's amazing. And the Carnarvon home, which now has got claim to fame of, of being the site for the Downton Abbey series where it was filmed, they've still got quite a large Egyptian collection there at their home at Highclere, don't they? Well, here's the thing. When I visited Highclere, I was surprised how small it is. Oh, really? Because if you watch Downton, it looks, the rooms look huge. And that's just camera ang- angles. They're actually the, the drawing room, the dining room, the smoking room. They're all quite small. So I'm guessing they must just put the library, they, they put the cameras down in the, <laughs> in the side. And the, the central atrium, which rises up to the height of the building, is spectacular. The rest of it is quite small. And the Egyptian collection is not huge. It's down in the basement, two or three connected rooms and they've only got replicas of Tutankhamun artifacts there they don't oh, have right. any real ones yeah. of course yeah. but they have some bits and pieces of pottery and broken jewelry mainly that Lord Carnarvon had found on earlier digs before the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb no the visit to High Clear was fascinating to me because I'd written about this already before I saw them there were some hidden cupboards in the wall between the drawing room and the smoking room that some artefacts were found in in the 1980s, I think. So after my story took place, but I thought, no, that's one of the the times I have to move my timeline back so that I can have Eve there when those cupboards were open. And I got to see these cupboards. And once again, they were smaller than I'd imagined them, but just set into the recess in the doorway, either side of the doorway between these two rooms. And it was fascinating to see that. I'm very glad I, I got there. I mean, it's beautiful, high clear. It's just smaller than it looks on the telly. <laughs> yes, it's interesting. And there was bitterness about the distribution of the find between the Egyptian government and the, the British explorers, yeah. wasn't there? So I read somewhere that when they opened, they, they kind of put them away almost in a kind of slightly we're fed up with the Egyptians. We don't want to know anything about the Egyptians. And they almost got forgotten about because of this bitterness that was going on. At High Clear, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was it was very hugely political, of course, what happened to the Tutankhamun relics. And um, they couldn't have been seen to have any at High Clear. Yeah. No, the rules were changing at that time. And uh, Lord Carnarvon and Howard Carter fully expected when they discovered the tomb, to get a decent share of it. But Egypt was struggling. In fact, it had just become independent of its British protectorate, but Britain still held a grip, still had ministers in power in different ministries because they wanted to keep control of the Suez Canal, which was a very important trading route for them to their colony in India. And uh, so Egypt was kind of half independent and not really. And uh, they got more and more cross that 
Lord Carnarvon and Howard Cart were claiming the discovery of the tomb as a British triumph. And they were like, hang on, it's our land, it's our ancestors that made all these artefacts. <laughs> and uh, it became hugely political at the time, as it still is today. Why is the why are Western museums hanging on to artefacts from all these places around the world? You know, in fact, I yeah. read at the weekend that the Smithsonian is giving back a lot of its artefacts, including the Benin bronzes are going back to Nigeria, which of course is where they should be. The British Museum, on the other hand, is um, lending some of the bronzes to Nigeria for an exhibition. It's like the thief, you know, who, who <laughs> plunders your home, lending you back your paintings or, or sculptures yes. or whatever. It's very very bizarre to me that we still hang on to these things. But yes, you know, I think it was felt at high clear that there was, some, there was something a bit shameful about the, And also because of the, you know, the sad way that Lord Car Carnarvon died and his brother very quickly afterwards, it maybe wasn't a period in time that they wanted to dwell on after the 1920s. Mm, mm. You've got another character in there, the Anna Mansour character who appears in the 1970s. Now, this is a relatively young woman who's who says she's researching the whole archaeological aspect of it as a representative of the Egyptian government. And she wants Lady Evelyn to give her recollections of it. But she's there's a certain sinister aspect to this character. Even right at the beginning, you're, the reader is a little bit unsure of just what her credentials are and whether she's fully truthful in, in the way that she's approaching things. And she remains slightly mysterious all the way through. She's a very good device for linking Eve back to the finds in the 1970s. Tell us a bit about Anna. So Anna has a couple of functions in the novel, and she is representative of a lot of Egyptian thought, which, you know, is that countries like Britain should be giving back yes. those artefacts that they have. You know, like the Rosetta Stone, this amazing stone that was found by Napoleon's troops in Egypt, the one that allows us to read hieroglyphics, is still sitting in the British Museum. And it's such a big part of Egyptian history. It's just really hard to fathom. So Anna does represent a school of Egyptian thought that, yeah, we should be finding out where these artefacts are and, and getting them back. But she also, as you say, she has a narrative device in the novel to link the two stories and to give a kind of drive forwards, um, you know, as, as readers hopefully wonder, you know, can we trust her? Is she, what's she doing? And, you know, where is where is the missing the missing item that they're looking for from the tomb? So, yeah, she has that dual function. There's a very interesting twist at the end for those who going to read the book it's, it's uh -huh. a great way that it ends which of course we're not going to tell you about but it, it was <laughs> no, <already>. no, no. <laughs> and it comes right through to today because you know when I was starting to research what we were going to talk about today I just happened to also be reading a New Yorker story about Tina Brown's new book The Palace Papers and I think I'd been vaguely aware that the Queen's Racing Manager was one of the Carnarvons but it just it all fell together because Eve's brother was called Porchy. He was the one who inherited. And I see that the racing manager that the Queen had until the early 2000s was also known as Porchy. And it's funny how <laughs> the, the aristocracy, you can see how it more or less just moves on from generation to generation, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yes. The racing manager was Eve's nephew. Eve in my novel, the uh, 
you know, her yes. nephew. Yeah, yeah. And there have been rumours that he did have an affair with the Queen because they were very close. They spent a lot of time together. They travelled to the States together to look at breeding techniques and training techniques. And, you know, so those rumours were present. Personally, you know, the Queen, I just can't see it for one second. The Queen is all about duty and honour and upholding yes. the standards of the monarchy. So it just makes no sense to me at all. But this was back in the 60s and 70s, when it was known that Prince Philip was having various mistresses around town. So I suppose the the tabloids press were just looking for something on the Queen as well. And she she loved, you know, horses are the great love of her life. And so she was spending a lot of time with her racing manager, who happens to be the nephew of my heroine in The Collector's Daughter. <laughs> yeah. Do you yourself put any credence on the curse stories? Where do, where do you stand on the so-called curse stories? Oh, my personal beliefs. I kind of tried to leave it so that the reader can step yeah. in and decide yeah. what they think about it. Yes, yeah. But yeah. I do say in the afterword that there were 26 people present at the opening of the tomb. And apart from Eve, they were in middle or late middle age. Ten years later, only six of them had died. And statistically for the era, it was probably less than you would expect. You know, fewer yeah. people who visited Tutankhamun's tomb died in the next, you know, decades than, than would have in the nor normal population. So it's hard to find real evidence for anything supernatural going on. They did look at various theories at the time. Every time, a de you know, somebody died, there'd be scandal, you know, the curse strikes again. And um, they did wonder whether there might have been some kind of microscopic spores in the air in the tomb or bat droppings, but none of these theories hold up at all. And statistically, it doesn't seem to have any basis at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just that's a fantastic book to read. I really recommend it to people. What are you working on now? Ah, I have written a book called The Manhattan Girls, which is set in 1920s New York. I'm loving the 1920s at the moment. You can see a theme here. And <laughs> this is about four women who formed a bridge group. And those four women were Dorothy Parker, the wittiest woman in the world, Jane Grant, who was the first female reporter at the New York Times and one of the co-founder of the New Yorker magazine. There's Winifred Lenehan, who was a Broadway actress starring in George Bernard Shaw's premiere, and um, a woman called Peggy Leach, who went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for history twice. So these are four women who had extraordinary careers for their age. I mean, this is a hundred years ago and all of them were massively successful. And um, they were also struggling to combine careers with, with relationships. So I write about their struggles, but also about their friendship through this bridge group, which did actually happen, by the way. This is based on a real bridge group and the real events. But as I do with my novels, I've fictionalised the women's lives a little bit, given them thoughts and dialogue and feelings. And uh, I had great fun writing it. It's, it's, I mean, it's daunting writing dialogue for the wittiest woman in the world. So that was, that was my challenge in this novel. Anyway, that one's coming out in August in the UK and US. And I'm hoping it's going to be at the same time in Australia, New Zealand. But I'll let you know, Jenny. It sounds fabulous. Did that take a lot of research? It sounds like it would have done. It did. You know, I just start by reading all the books I can find. And um, 
obviously about Dorothy Parker, there was loads. Mm, about mm. Winifred Lenehan, there's very little. So I had a bit more room to play with her character. Peggy Leach, the one who won the Pulitzer, she's interesting because she had written three novels in that period. And so I could kind of, and they're all about relationships and about the times. And so I could kind of get a sense of her personality through reading her fiction. And then, of course, I think, gosh, I wonder what people make of my personality reading my fiction, because you do get a sense of the author when you read a book, I think. Not that it's directly autobiographical, but you can tell a bit about their worldview and how they think about things. Yes. Yeah. That's fantastic, my dear. Thank you so much for your time. It's going to be the first one in our new Encore series. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'm delighted to talk to you again. It's been lovely. Bye for now. Bye-bye.